This is the Criterion Creeps podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. Uh, Yuletide Baylog. And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spy number at a time in order of release. This episode, well, this is something else. A Christmas gift to you, the listeners, and perhaps a new listener who is coming to the party for the first time. Who knows? It's been said by some that the Criterion Creeps podcast is the Citizen Kane of non-affiliated Criterion Mm. Collection-based podcasts, Mm -hmm. and we've never disagreed with this sentiment. But what does it even mean when someone says something is the Citizen Kane of something? Well, I for one you, as I'm not a piece of shit doing a film podcast, who hadn't seen Citizen Kane before this week. How about you, RJ? Oh my god. Don't air our dirty laundry out on out live over the internet. Answer the question. Have had you seen Citizen Kane before this week? I'd, through uh, cultural osmosis. Through the I Simpsons. Saw, I saw that Simpsons episode 10 years ago. I saw ten other... years ago, man. That's like, oh yeah, you're a you're a child. Um, yeah. Like, god, twenty years ago, over tw- god damn, twenty over twenty years ago, probably. Hey, why don't you just leave me alone, man? Yeah. Um, I watched it. All right, or did I? I don't know. Maybe well, I just told you I watched. Well, it. Well, we've rectified this problem, folks, and now mm-hmm. you get our creep on a surprise entry in the Criterion Creep. As we turn back the clock, not only on our numbering, but on physical media, as we go all the way back to the beginning of the Criterion Collection itself, as we go back to the days when laser discs walked the earth. At one point, the closest thing to film projection man had in the early 80s, other than film projection, and we look at spine number one in the Criterion Collection laser disc collection, and that's Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. But first, RJ, Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas, Jer. Are you uh, filled with Yuletide fest- uh, merriment? Uh, I'm filled with shortbread cookies, and uh, I'm drinking some uh, green tea from our merch that uh, your girlfriend bought us for Christmas. <laughs> First official merch, uh, I, and I had a friend called them Creeper Cups, mm. which I think is a, uh, a delightful name. It's alliterative. I'm a fan. Yeah. So uh, if people are uh, curious as what we're talking about, head over to the Instagram and uh, get a get a glimpse at this these warlocks, these creeper cups, and you know let us know if you would be interested in a, a creeper cup, a commemorative cup, <laughs> a commemorative cup to uh, acknowledge the podcast that uh, you, me, and my mom all care about so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing? Uh, just fine. Like I said. Uh, sh- eating some shortbread kind of fasting for the rest of the day because uh oh, yeah. i've got some uh chinese food by way of a vietnamese restaurant coming our way at around five o'clock and uh, yeah and then it's just like eating for the next two days straight pretty well mm-hmm. it's going to be disgusting we're going to be like orson wells we're here get we're going <laughs> to aim for it <laughs> we're aiming for it yeah and how, yeah. Are, and how are you doing uh, I'm okay, man. Um, I broke my toilet seat like two weeks ago, <laughs> but uh, Andrea hasn't noticed yet, so I think I'm just gonna let it ride. Oh, <laughs> is this like so? She listens to this. She's gonna be like, what? She, she doesn't listen to the podcast. Oh, okay, well, we're safe then. Yeah, come on. So uh, that's interesting. I mean, I've been I've just been waiting for the day that it gets discovered, but you know, so far I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, if anyone was wondering what it's like to be unemployed, I just summed it up for you in, uh, in one sentence. It's uh, my life now. Hiding the broken toilet from the girlfriend. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, it, it's only noticeable like if you lift the seat up, which uh, as a female, she doesn't do often. So, and my understanding is you do the, the cleaning around the house, so she, she's not Absolutely. even going to notice then either. No. 
Yeah. So uh, pretty much, it's just uh, it's all on me. I'm, I'm the only one who notices. But uh, I mean, it seems okay. It's not really throwing me off my game. You know, I have a pretty strong toilet game. We've discussed this before, but uh, it hasn't hindered my ability in any way yet. So, Amazing. as I said, I'm just I'm just gonna let it ride. Great. <laughs> much like uh, much like this movie, uh, that is the greatest opening of podcast. Yeah. Podcast them. Podcast them. I bet Orson Welles had some toilet issues in his days. <laughs> oh, oh, Orson. Well, when I when I meet him in the afterlife, I'll ask him. Yep, that's right. Um, well, before we get to talking about Orson Welles's uh, physique, uh, <laughs> let's talk about what we've been Christmas creeping on or cre- creep mass viewing. I don't creep know. mass. Yeah. All right. Uh, Do you? I don't know. You you can start kick us off here. Um, go for it. Do you it. want the the things I've actually been creeping on, or uh, my 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 Christmas traditions that uh, maybe I haven't gotten to yet? Well, you can do whatever you want. All right. I'll just open. tell you what what I've been creeping on. Okay. Uh, I watched a few Christmas movies this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, some golden staples, some new ones that will be brought into the rotation. Uh, let's let's just start with the staples, dear. People heard me before talk about Home Alone, which is an almost perfect movie. Uh, just coming in hot last night, I watched Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Um, it's, it's fine. Uh, I have like a lot of, I think, as most people would, I have an attachment to it, so I, lo- I can overlook a lot of the bad parts, but when you actually watch it, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, it's there. It's just a carbon copy, but not as not as seamless, I, I guess. But more set in urban decay. <laughs> urban decay, yeah. yeah. And you got that pigeon lady that scared the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got big Tim Curry. Always glad to see him oh, and Rob Schneider. And his big, bright, smiling face. His big, bright smile, yeah. That scene where uh, they play the... He plays the old gangster movie, and it's talking about Tim Curry kissing, smooching with his brother and Clint or Cliff. That stuff still makes me laugh. People might not know what I'm talking about, but maybe go watch Home Alone 2 and you will. Okay. Um, president uh, elect, uh, official president, uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump was had an appearance, so that was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Home Alone 2 is uh, not bad. It is not the majesty that is Home Alone 1, but uh, you get a little bit more. You get some more Macaulay Culkin. You get that dirty old uncle. Uh, you get Buzz, who reminds me of my older brother, because my older brother was a bully. Uh, he doesn't listen to this, so he can't attest to it. He He's on this new thing now where he's trying to cr- tell people he wasn't a bully when he was little, but oh, he he was a boy, bully, especially to me. Is he whitewashing? Time, yeah, he's trying to. Now that he has kids, I think he's like trying to uh, erase everyone's memory, but I remember. One time he tied me up to a chair and uh, put a Rastafarian wig on my head, told me it was full of spiders, put me in a closet and left me there for like five hours. <laughs> That's a Buzz thing to. Well, I guess Buzz was never that mean. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Home Alone too. I, I think he watched that this year too, and he said it was pretty good. We're yeah. cool now, by the way. Okay. Yeah, we're friends. No more but, uh, spider wigs. Uh, I bet he he would try still if uh, he could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we're friends now, but uh, I'll never forget, Jer. Mm-hmm. Never forget. Uh, so what else did I get into? I watched a Jingle All the Way, the '96 oh. classic with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, everyone's favorite, Phil Hartman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, again, I have a lot of, like, 
sentimental attachment to it, but it, it is also not the best. I think a lot of them are just... It, that movie's just a good paycheck for everyone involved. Tom Hanks, his wife, uh, Arnold, he's not really doing much. Sinbad and Phil Hartman are pretty badass in that, though. They do the heavy lifting. They do the heavy lifting. Sinbad, uh, he's great in his supporting role in Phil Hartman. I mean, come on. How yeah. do you get much better than that? Yeah. It's turbo time. Arnold Schwarzenegger punches a reindeer in the head and then gives him beer. So mm-hmm. there's not a lot of movies where that happens. You know. <laughs> you know, I've never seen Jingle All the Way. It's sort what? of it's sort of my Citizen Kane. That's your Citizen Kane. Yeah. Well, did I sell it to you just now? No. Okay. Uh, well, well, I'll I'll, I'll, lay, I'll like this. You like Phil Hartman, right? Yep. And do you wish he was? You could get more of Phil Hartman. Uh, not really. Oh, you monster. We'll watch Jingle All the Way. It's fun. Uh, Phil Hartman's really good. Sinbad is really good. And uh, as I said, he punches a reindeer in that movie. So you'd love that because you're a monster. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, Jingle All the Way is pretty good. You got the turbo time, stuff like that. Uh, Another of my staples. Um, This is probably, this is a weird one for me, I think. But like one of my most watched Christmas movies ever is Trading Places. Yeah, uh, the John Landis joint. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite it being a John Landis movie, it's one of my favorite, and I think the reason is because this movie was just fucking like in circulation nonstop for years and years, like on Showtime or Showcase or something, uh, for the entire like from November to December. This movie was just always playing, and I've I've watched it so many times. You got Big Dan Aykroyd. He is, uh, as I understand it, you have never seen Trading Places, right? No, uh, the plan is to do that up. This year, yeah, yeah. I, I I always saw it more as a New Year's Eve movie because that is where the uh, the climax of the movie occurs. I, I guess maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but just for people out there who don't know, uh, you got Big Dan Aykroyd, and he works at this big brokerage company, uh, and then you got Eddie Murphy, who is a homeless man. And the two sinister guy, uh, old bastards who own the place, they're like, hey, let's do an experiment. Let's make Dan Aykroyd broke like Eddie Murphy. And let's make Eddie Murphy rich like Dan Aykroyd and see if they uh, see if they change their ways. It's the whole uh, Prince and the Pauper type deal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it all occurs at uh, Christmas. And it has my all-time favorite uh, Christmas scene in every, any movie. I won't spoil it for you, but it involves salmon and, uh, El- uh, and Santa Claus. Oh. It's my absolute favorite. I love it. Dan Aykroyd is wicked in this movie. Eddie Murphy is wicked in this movie. And you know who else is in this? Uh, Stone Cold Fox, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. A four for True, Lie day, uh, True Lies appearance where everyone was like, ooh, dang, Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. She was in this. Uh, you'll be happy to hear she gets naked in this movie a couple times. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. That might be another reason why I watched this so much as a little kid. Because like on Showtime... <laughs> Showtime or Showcase, like, they didn't blur nudity, I don't think. Right. So uh, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. It makes me tingly uh, in weird places. Yeah. I feel strange, man. I don't know what that voice was. I don't know. All right. Anyways, uh, Train Places Rules. I think it's a wicked movie. Okay. Um, one of my favorite Christmas movies. And then uh, two new ones that uh, will be in rotation. Uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Oh, yeah. And uh, Mr. Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. I know what you might be asking. How have I not seen that? And the answer is I was saving it. It was the only Kubrick I haven't watched. So, you know, that when you have one last thing, it's like, I just don't want to watch it yet. I want to save it. 
I was saving that, so. Yeah. Eyes Wide Shut's not like, yeah, you get, it's a Christmas movie. It takes place during Christmas. It does. I'm not really going to talk about that. The Apartment, I thought, is a terrific movie. Also just kind of taking place at Christmas with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie's wicked. Yeah. Have you seen it? Oh, uh, yeah, I have. I have seen it, uh, and it is wicked, as is Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, they're both five-star affairs in my in my books. Yeah, uh, it's been a while since I've watched The Apartment. Um, I just remember that sweet Conrad Hall cinematography. Um, mm-hmm. It's a movie that really captures sadness well. Uh, Jack oh, yeah. Levin is at his charmingest. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, that was like, uh, I want to say it might have even been like the fairly early on like Stanley Kubrick died and like I mm-hmm. just kind of heard about who Stanley Kubrick was at that point because I was in high school and kind of just was right. like getting into watching movies and stuff um, mm-hmm. and I got to see Eyes Wide Shut that following summer and I thought the movie just like blew my mind and mm-hmm. that's my two friends uh, who went to it with me they both hated it <laughs> oh uh, yeah like they uh, my one friend he was having like real horrible tooth pains and he actually like in the middle of the movie during those like piano stings uh yeah. he like had to get up and go making a, a disappointment because it was driving his face just crazy um, i got gotcha. you and my other friend he just thought it was boring and pointless and yeah. th- th- i think th- they're wrong then and i'm sure they're wrong they're now. wrong now yeah that happens man uh me and my one buddy went to the fountain in theater here and we loved it and we we told other people to go and i th- when did the fountain come out 14 years ago or something i swear to god still to this day People come up to me and they're like, "It's, they, they're like, it's not like that one time you told me to go see that fucking movie that was horrible," and because people just hated, hated the fountain, and I was like, "Well, I liked it." It was ten years so, ago, just over ten, 10 years, years ago, ago, November twenty second, yeah. two thousand six. Well, there you go, man. Yeah. And my point, I guess, is it, it happens to all of us. That is also a Christmas movie. Oh yeah. Well, it has snow and things of that nature. <laughs> okay. It's I, I uh, snow is synonymous with Christmas, correct? Yeah, sure. It's seasonal. Like the thing. Um, like the thing, exactly. Uh, I think that's really all I, I watched. Worth oh, talking I, I, about. Yeah, worth talking about. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched uh, probably uh, my favorite. Skype hates what you're saying. You what? Skype hated whatever you were just about to talk about. Oh, well, I was going to say, I, I haven't mentioned, I haven't watched my favorite Christmas movie yet. Which is? I Am Legend. Oh, you are, am I off the podcast now? Uh, hey, so I've watched the movies. <laughs> oh no! I okay, what did you so watch? I've been making my way through the Silent Night, Deadly Night films. Oh no! <laughs> uh, I watched Silent Night, Deadly Night one a year or two ago, and mm-hmm. I thought it was not too bad for like a horror slasher killer dresses Santa Claus type deal. Um, mm. It's hmm, what do I say about this movie? It, it's got like you can see like where it got chopped up and edited out like all the good gruesome bits and then uh, yeah. in the Blu-ray that uh, I think Anchor Bay put out they put those scenes back in but they haven't been properly restored so there's kind of like that always that video drop in quality mm-hmm. so but it's fine like I, I'm, I'm pretty okay with that stuff but I think the movie's mm-hmm. like a, a good old Christmas horror romp um, it's not black Christmas but I think it's in the in the in the dialogue it's in the conversation of of uh that stuff christmas horror so then this year i've watched silent night deadly night part two which i'd never seen Mm -hmm. before but it's kind of famous 
because of the Garbage Day uh, video clip. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way I'd ever known the movie. And I've watched that clip many times and laughed a lot. But I never actually had seen the movie. Um, so I watched Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 again, just to watch it. It's right. going to be watching 2. And I kind of forgot completely that the first 40 minutes of 2 is all just a recap of Silent Night, Deadly Night 1, but in a flashback with the like yeah. the new guy, um, the brother of the killer in the first movie. He's just mm-hmm. he's now in a psych ward, and he's talking about his past. So the first 40 minutes are just Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 in recap with their voiceover narration, and it's missing all the, like connective tissue of a movie um and then the yeah. second half is where you start getting his flashbacks to like when he now that after his brother's killed at the end of silent night daily night one he, <sighs> he's Spoilers. he's he's crazy now too and he so he's going around killing people um and then uh we get we finally it all is building toward garbage day Um, Garbage mm-hmm. Day is still pretty good, but the movie, it's like, it's super cheap. Uh, the fact that I had just watched part one and then followed it with two, and I got to watch the same movie again for 40 minutes, but crappily, that didn't help me uh, yep. enjoy this. But it's, I don't know. It's, it's fine. Not, yeah, I don't I don't get like how people could possibly say that this is like a great horror movie or great Christmas horror movie. Like It's just a movie. Hype machine? Hype machine, I don't know. People wishing things were better than they were. Is it just because of that garbage day thing? Um, I don't know. I, I, the garbage day still delivers. <laughs> mm. See, I've never seen that clip ever. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, what would you recommend though? Would, just watching that, or watching the movie and going in like oh, just clean? Watch, just watch the clip. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, all right. Yeah, just watch the clip. You'll, it's good. Uh, and then I watched Silent Night, Deadly Night three, which Uh-oh. is like. Uh, has a tenuous connection t- with the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. Uh, right. It's got your favorite actor, um, Bill Mosley. Uh, oh God! Surprising. Uh, one of the like one of he's one of the brothers. Uh, apparently, he didn't die like in like they do in the other two movies, but he got sure. saved by uh, a doctor, and now his brain's just exposed in a clear case. And of course. he's just, you know, he's just a maniac. Um, the only thing that really is noteworthy about the movie is the actress has like a striking resemblance to Jennifer Connelly. Um, oh, yeah. And she has like those dream sequences. The movie's directed by Monty Hellman, the director of such films as like Two Lane Blacktop, um, the, uh, Ride the Whirlwind, The Shooting, and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's okay. like, so I mean, like, this is obviously late period Monty Hellman, and it's mm-hmm. total, like, pretty uninvested work. Um, the movie's pretty boring and like terribly made. Uh, I don't know how anyone even talks about this movie favorably. I, it just any charm mm-hmm. of, it, of it is lost on me. It's super generic, bad slasher stuff. Don't yep. watch it. Uh, but I do have Silent Night, Deadly Night Four. I still need to watch uh, somehow in the next day um, is, because is that one about another brother? I have no idea. But it's directed by Brian Yuzna. Really? Yeah. Your buddy. My buddy. Is this early Yuzna or late Yuzna? This is uh, getting toward late Yuzna. So it's oh, like so it's, you're not a prob- fan of those ones. Prob- well, it's right. It's right on the line. We'll find out where the cutoff point with him is. Um, and then there's also five, which, from my understanding, is directed by Quentin Tarantino's assistant director, mm. and uh, has Mickey Rooney in it. It's like Mickey Toy- Rooney. Yeah. So does he play the garbage bag? 
Uh, I don't know. He's, he's the toy maker. It's because it's oh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, the toy maker. Uh, I wish. Oh. So I okay. got so I got through those. Uh, mm-hmm. I checked out a Christmas classic, or it gets put on a lot of lists. Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, starring Judy uh-huh. Garland. Uh, it's all I'll say about this movie is it's beautiful. It's like that stunning Technicolor look. Um, yeah. It's just a movie. It's kind of like a really nice version of the Magnificent Ambersons. It's about like a mm-hmm. well-to-do family in St. Louis uh, in 1903, and it kind of takes place over the course of a year. So each kind of section is a season. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go from like a, a yeah, the patriarch of the family is a lawyer, and he basically gets to support his whole family of like what is it three or four kids five kids uh mm-hmm. judy garland is a girl who has a crush on the boy next door uh her older sister has a crappy long distance relationship with a guy and no one wants to mar- marry her even though she's like all of like 18 but it's like oh geez she's getting old long in the tooth mm-hmm. no one's gonna want to marry this 18 year old bag <laughs> long in the tooth huh? yeah and uh so it's like oh my goodness i'm going to college and i'm not even married yet my word um and then there's like mm-hmm. the the wicked kid uh uh, the little girl Tootie, I think is her name, off the top of my head. She is so cool. She's this, this like really charming, morbid mm-hmm. little kid who just like like buries her dolls in the cemetery and stuff like that. So every scene with her is really great. Um, but yeah, the movie just kind of goes through the motions of this like family's life in 1903, building toward the World's Fair uh, the following year. And there's like a there's like a Halloween section in fall that's like super strange and creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the last act is the, the Christmas section where you get uh, Judy Garland's rendition of have yourself a merry little Christmas. Um, and is yeah, it hot? is it hot? Uh, with two T's. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I don't know. The movie's just like, uh, I, it's not as amazing as like, I'd probably been led to believe it was, but like, it's really like an odd movie. Cause it doesn't feel like anything else I've really seen from that period of time. It's kind of like in its own place. It's a musical, but in this, it's kind of like a realistic musical. And like Judy Garland could actually sing, and so she like she gets to blow her pipes and like just go at it and just do the whole song and dance with her. But then right. all the other characters when they sing or dance, they're like singing like normal people would. Mm-hmm. So it's not like total musical stuff, which I appreciate. Um, and then I watched two weird, like outsider art Christmas things, uh, that were letterbox discoveries on YouTube. One's called Santa's enchanted village and another one called Santa's magic kingdom. Um, Mm. so just to summarize these things, these were like shot in this like Christmas village that like somewhere in like California. Um, and they were just made to like basically promote this park. That's like Christmas year round. But it was made by people who don't know how to make movies. Um, and, like, they just have, like, these costumes. Like, they have characters like Puss in Boots. And, like, there's a skunk man and a wolf man. Yeah. And there's Santa Claus. And part of the charm of these things is just, like, the horrendous uh, production values and, like, horrible audio. Because it's... I don't even know how to replicate this quietly. But, like, sounds like this. And then he comes to mm. see a roar like this. And all, like, the characters have, like, bad ADR done. And it's just, I don't know. You can't help but laugh at all of like just how awful they are. Um, right. And they're like, super simplistic. I mean, they're aimed at kids. The idea is like, hey, people, bring your children to this creepy hell mm. world. Um, and it's like well, the the way that these things exist now is like washed out 16 millimeter prints of these videos and like horrible sound. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 
offbeat, but they put a smile on my face this Christmas season. Did you say something? I did. Did oh, it get cut off? Yeah, I did. God damn it, Skype. It's got all that Christmas traffic. It can't it handle it. It probably does. What did you say? I can't remember, but it was witty. It was whimsical, and it was it was probably the best comment ever. I don't even fucking remember. Okay. Yeah. You all just... that nog is getting to my head. Damn it. Well, uh, the only other one I will bring up is one of my favorite Christmas movies, and I haven't actually seen mm-hmm. it for a really long time, and that's Mickey's Christmas Carol. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That You're movie big. scares the shit out of me when I was a kid so bad. Why? Oh, I don't know. I, I, watching it now, so I went and bought the Blu-ray of it, and so mm-hmm. watching it in, like, HD, it looks amazing. Uh, it's the best it's ever looked from watching it, like, on, like, CBC's Magical World of Disney uh, in full mm-hmm. frame. Watching it now in widescreen and, like, with all the colors proper, uh, you really notice how amazing Disney's, like, color palettes are, the sense mm-hmm. of design of its animators. Um, it's, yeah, everything, like, everything that's really great about Disney is really captured in this for me. Sure. Um, and, yeah, like, so this, as far as, like, why I find this thing so creepy or, like, scary, like, there's just scenes, like, when... Uh, Scrooge McDuck comes back to uh, his house uh, after the end of the mm-hmm. workday. There's like the uh, Jacob Marley goofy like, door handle, the knocker face. That yep. thing freaked me out a little bit. And then um, the next scene that really like I found off-putting always was when he's uh, visited by the ghost of Christmas present and it's the giant. And it's just like, oh yeah, yeah, he's just massive. And like the bit where he, uh, Scrooge is like woken up by like the sounds of him eating, and he peeks out, mm-hmm. and you just see this huge, gigantic man. And then he cowers and hides back into his bed. And then he opens up the curtain, and it's just the giant's eye, uh, just right. looking in. That stuff always I thought was like unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. And then just like the sadness of like, oh, Tiny Tim, and uh, like, and like. Um, uh, Cratchit's house and like I think especially like the scene where he's uh, cutting the pea in half to like split oh, yeah. amongst the family it's just oh it's so sad and traumatic mm-hmm. and like the tiny little uh, like parakeet sized turkey that they're eating um, yep. and then we transition to the ghost of uh, futures or ghost of Pre- Christmas future Come uh, on. <laughs> and then you have like the like um they're not bugle boys, but like the giant evil cat Disney men. Like, and the he's bugle boys. Bugle boys, yeah, I guess. And he's like in the Grim Reapers outfit, and yeah. you get, you can see oh a dead child in a Disney cartoon. Um, Great. And, and then you get the like open grave and basically Scrooge getting tossed into uh, hell in an open mm-hmm. burning casket. And it's like yeah, this stuff all just like has haunted me for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I still love this thing. I think it's great. Oh, yeah. The music's amazing. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of weird. I'm surprised that there's like a lot of like almost indifference or people just like shrug their shoulders at this uh, on my letterbox network of people mm-hmm. I follow. But because like, I think it's like amazing. Um, I also watched the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, yep. one. And I, I've never been super crazy about those Charlie yes. Brown animated films like it's always been one of those things like i admire it from a distance um like i think like mm-hmm. the music the soundtrack of that thing is awesome we play that in the car all the time yeah uh this time of year but yeah i don't know that that one that one leaves me a little bit cold but mm-hmm. mickey's christmas carol that's the that's the shit mm-hmm. yeah i like uh i like the peanut ones i like the disney ones quite a bit too because those those old disney ones man mm-hmm. it's good stuff i'm also a big fan of the muppets world 
you know, and the Muppets Christmas Carols. Yeah. Was that like Patrick Stewart or something like that? Michael is, Caine. Uh, Michael Caine, correct. Yeah. I'm sure Patrick Stewart has done it though. Before. Oh, he. Oh, Patrick Stewart has definitely played Scrooge. There's like a this awesome yeah. one with him on DVD cover with like holding up the cane like he's about to strike the uh, viewer of the DVD. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, eat that <laughs> shit up. Yeah. yeah. It's good stuff, man. All the that old stuff is wicked. Yeah, I'll have you to. Know? Yeah, I'm like, I might try to. Wa- running out of time here, I think I might have to try to watch uh, the Alistair Sim Scrooge because I haven't watched that for a really, really, really long time. Um, that's like the old good one, if you will. The old good one. Yeah. If you would mm-hmm. know, it's Alistair Sim. If you saw him, you go, oh, that guy. That not, guy. Not George C. Scott Christmas Carol. Fuck that. Uh, why? What's wrong with that one? I have no idea. <laughs> Oh, God dang it, Jarrett. God dang it. Dang it, Bobby. Well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're getting into the Christmas spirit. You usually hate things. So. <laughs> this is true. Uh, this is very true. Oh, you, you do you want a, uh, I, don't, I, I hate this, but I watched Die Hard for the first time in a really long time. Oh, yeah. Because uh, that's a Christmas movie. Um, I was. I started. So they say. So they say it is. It, 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 yeah. It's definitely at a Christmas party. Um, mm-hmm. But so Die Hard's a movie that I've never been super crazy about. I think it's like it's mm-hmm. fine. It's good. It's entertaining. But I don't get the love it gets. The like yep. this is like one of the best action movies ever made kind of thing. I'm like, oh yeah, no. I mean, it's influential <laughs> and stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm actually more into like the relationship stuff in the first like 12, 15 minutes of that movie, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as the terrorists show up, I just go, all oh, right, this is an action movie. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, yep. Yeah, I mean, every Die Hard movie that's ever been inspired by Die Hard, like Under Siege, it's always the same yep. stuff, same setup. Uh, if you're into that, it's wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's always just like, yep, it's Die Hard, and it's long. That movie's two hours and twelve minutes. Um, I started watching that last night, thinking it was like, ah, oh, it's like under two, and then I realized it was getting later and later. I'm like, how much longer is left? And I was like, Jesus Christ, there's a half hour. Um, yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to bed. And now I don't really know if I'm going to finish it because I'm like, I already know how it ends. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, we know. You don't need to. Yeah, he says the you day. You know what happens. Yeah. Um, I've never been yeah, super I agree engaged with you. by it. Um, Die Hard's fine. I think that's another movie I've talked about a lot, but it's up there with the Fight Clubs and the Scarfaces for me. Uh, movies that get brought into the, the the spotlight and just get heaped on it all the time by everyone. Mm-hmm. And it just really brings me down, man. It's like, yeah, I know. I liked it once too. But everybody begs or like bring, pumps it up so much. I just, I just can't. <laughs> I may never watch it again, Jerry. Yeah, I I mean I would I would probably watch it again sometime, but not for a very long time. If it was on in like a bar maybe, and I'm sure that is definitely a movie that plays in like bars and stuff like that. Mhm. So, yeah, well everyone's got shaved bald heads like Bruce Willis now and uh, they like to look back mm-hmm. at the old days when Bruce had hair. And when people didn't know that he was like a really bad person. <laughs> or maybe that doesn't matter. Uh, was he a bad person? As Kevin Smith would say so. Oh, well, Kevin Smith's a bad person too. <gasps> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Whatever. that's. I think that's it for our Christmas rundown. I think so. I think we have a, a main event to get onto. Eh, I didn't watch that movie that you told me to watch, so. All right. I'm just gonna hang some, out. I guess I got some heavy lifting to do. Sure do. Well, folks, after the break, uh, we're going to die alone, unmourned, unloved. 
and we're talking Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles from 1941. That ugly fat man swam in a red tire made of stone Painted lady paddled next to him with two poodles on her lap. Garbo quietly picked a flower while the chauffeur won his check again. And as Barrymore took a noonday nap, diamonds fell like rain. Kid and a bald-headed waitress trapped neath the bed of brass. And the French cook served them chocolate ants and cold cuts on the grass. Luella ripped a zebra pants in the polo lounge. And Errol Flynn was not let in cause he was coming down. Speaking for the Mercury Theatre, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theatre, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's a pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. Joseph Cotton. I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth. Look at the camera, Ruth. <laughs> we caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful. Ray Collins. Dorothy Comingore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comingore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. And here's George Kouluris, who's a grand actor. I'll say that name again. George Kouluris. Watch it. Here comes Everett Sloan. Look out, Everett. Oops. Everett Sloan, ladies and gentlemen. He isn't necessarily a comedian. And here's one of the best in the world. Agnes Moorhead. I've said a lot of nice things, but Erskine Sanford deserves some more. Erskine. Erskine Sanford. So does Paul. Paul... Paul Stewart, everybody. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane, Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. 
As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist. Kane, governor. Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week at the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. But all the girls say about him at first. But you know, I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero. And a scoundrel, a no-account, and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. And we're back, and we're talking about that Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles from 1941, spine number one in the Criterion Collection Laserdisc uh, collection that started back in the early 80s. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I think this would be a great opportunity, RJ, to talk about the history of the Criterion Collection that I've managed to unearth a little bit, because I came across mm. a book at the library, because libraries are great. You um, nerd. Yeah, it's a book called The DVD in the Study of Film, The Attainable Text by Mary Parker Ooh. and Deborah Parker. Um, I, I was just kind of curious, because like there's, I mean, considering the influence of the Criterion Collection, I think, uh, on like consumers um, and mm-hmm. film goers and filmmakers, I thought it'd be kind of worthwhile to see if there was much in the way of like discussion about like those early days of Criterion Collection. And back when we did our first episode, I had kind of a, I kind of did a walkthrough of, of like the information that I could find at the time, but I didn't know that this book existed that kind of actually mm-hmm. had a whole chapter committed to just talking about it. So just a recap uh, of that. So uh, Criterion Collection was first started by three people, uh, Bob Stein, uh, Aline Stein, and Roger Smith. And Roger Smith, uh, he was formerly a senior vice president at Warner Brothers Studio. Mm-hmm. Um so the Steins had the idea, and Smith actually had the means and business connections to finance the making of the company's first titles, which were Citizen Kane and King Kong. Uh, they procured the rights for doing the laser discs for ten thousand dollars in 1983 from Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the driving force was uh, to doing the Criterion Collection in the first place was the, an insistence on high quality transfers from film to laser disc, and a desire to explore and exploit the new technologies at hand. Um, mm-hmm. so what that means is like, uh, I guess like Bob Stein, like he'd wind up founding a company called Voyager, which actually was like a multimedia, pr- uh, company. Like his whole idea was how you could like explore, uh, storage space and try to make things more, um, uh, exploded out and like more of sure. like, a, like film school in a package, which is kind mm-hmm. of like the thing that the cliche that's used to describe criterion always. Um, right. it's like, and if you look at the original logo, it's like a... Uh, film reel turning into a book 
and exploding out. Uh, yeah, that was like what the old idea for the logo was. It's very dated looking now. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen that. Yeah, if, yeah, if you look it up, just like a Criterion Collection Laserdisc, you get to see the old mm-hmm. original logo. Um, so I guess, yeah, Aline Stein, she further traces the idea for the collection to a conversation that took place amongst herself, Bob Stein, Bob Medjuk, and his wife, Lori Dean, in 1983. Bob Stein proposed starting a company that would publish original material on Laserdisc. Uh, Medjuk thought that assembling new material would be too expensive without financial backing and instead suggested putting existing films on Laserdisc with extras. Having published a magazine called Take Two while a film professor in Toronto, uh, he was aware that there was loads of stuff available. And that's a quote-unquote loads of stuff um loads of stuff but yes nice. so it was bob stein who actually acted on the idea um mm-hmm. so they went and made these films um put them on laser disc but i guess like so notwithstanding the presence of the first two productions that essentially laid the groundwork for dvd as we know it uh roger smith found it more difficult to obtain financial backing to produce additional titles that he had anticipated rather than continue an entrepreneur venture (laughs) with an uncertain future, Smith opted to return to the corporate world, leaving the Steins without the means to procure additional films. One year later, this impasse was overcome. In 1985, the Steins formed a new partnership with Saul uh, Saul Turrell, his son Jonathan, and William Becker, owners of Yanis Films, a distribution company of foreign film Mm -hmm. classics, and renamed the new venture Voyager after the satellite probe. Shortly after this new alliance, Roger Smith ceded the original name of the company Criterion back to the Steins, at which point the Criterion collection became uh, a vision within Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, the, the partnership with Yanis Films brought to them the rights to the films that, I mean, everyone kind of watches Criterion Films for, like the Ingmar Bergmans, the Truffauts, the Fellinis, the Kurosawas, the Godards. Sister Act. Sister Act. Um, mm-hmm. That's what, like, really, I mean, those are the films that really, I mean, have defined... Uh, kind of like a, a certain strain of cinema ever right. since. Um, I feel yeah. Yeah. And I guess, like, I mean, I was just reading about, like, Criterion. In its early days, it sounded very much like it was like a bohemian commune almost. Like, loose hours. Oh. Everyone's <laughs> hanging out in California. People coming and going, working the hours, getting the work done, man. <laughs> that sounds um, fun. Yeah, people would just come and go. You know, Roger Ebert would swing by and check out and see what's going on. <laughs> He'd swing by the Pe- Pleasure Palace at the <laughs> Criterion uh, mm-hmm. estate. Damn mm. right. That sounds fun. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cur- interesting to seeing what kind of, uh, what was the impetus for this stuff. And I mean, like, sure. yeah, the way commentary tracks were invented, essentially, because there wasn't one on the Citizen Kane, but there was on King Kong, um, where it was, I think, uh, they had a film expert come in from a UCLA or whatever, and he started just talking. They were going to do like an interview with him and then put it onto the package. But then they realized, mm-hmm. oh, we could just like record this whole thing of him talking over the movie and just put it on as a separate track. Could we, can we do that? Is the technology there? And they went, yep. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was discovered. And then we've been doing commentary tracks ever since. And just, and just the idea of like, I mean, I guess like even like the original, um, like Citizen Kane laser disc, it would have information like budgets and stuff like that. And like have mm-hmm. all like the actual like financial information. Like it was like ridiculously thorough. Um, like it was kind of trying to have every single piece of information you could possibly ask and put it yeah. onto it. Um, whereas I think we're a lot more lax about what gets put onto this stuff. Um, supplements. Yeah, supplements. But there's like um, like uh, my friend Steven, he was kind of complaining that he just got some recent Criterions and he was kind of like bummed out that they're, they haven't really been doing a lot of crit- uh, commentary tracks recently, which yeah. is unfortunate, I guess. Um, but I mean, I wonder how many people nowadays actually 
go through and listen to movies with commentary tracks after watching a movie. Um, like Only nerds like us. Nerds like us. Nerds like me um, mm-hmm. who do that, like I did this week. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe there's just like a trade-off where they realize a lot of people aren't even doing it, so why spend a lot of money to do it? But I mean, it's kind of just getting away from that vision of trying to make them the definitive mm-hmm. uh, packaging for this particular movie when they put them out. Right. Um, one thing I'll mention too is uh, there's a nice little bit about the kind of change from Laserdisc to DVD. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the first DVDs, like an actual DVDs, were released in March 1997, and it wasn't until 1998 that Criterion started putting out their own. Um, the delay was due to navigating that transition from Laserdisc to DVD because mm-hmm. they didn't want to alienate their fan base. Uh, right. There was also concern about compression. Uh, this was alleviated as their technical director, Lee Klein, showed the New York staff. So at one point, Criterion jumps from California to New York, which is where they're based out of still. Um, mm-hmm. And he had them do a comparison of the seven laser disc that Criterion did to New Line Cinema's recently re- uh, released DVD uh, through their Platinum series. And mm-hmm. obviously they were wowed by the difference, um, which is fitting that because I guess the guy who actually was responsible for the New Line uh, release was actually a former Criterion producer named Mark Rance, um, and who had just recently been hired away by New Line to head up their Platinum series line. Mm. Um, so... Here's the. This is like a thing about laserdisc. It's like, right. so RJ, have you ever seen a laserdisc player? Can you imagine seeing movies as close to the original cinema quality as possible at home? We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Then you're ready for laserdisc. The latest in home entertainment is the PAL laserdisc player, a machine which plays both feature-length movies and compact music discs. This unit forms the ideal center of a home entertainment system. Feel your living room come alive as you experience your favorite concert or movie with up to 60% better picture quality, matched by the stunning digital sound of compact discs. Girl, we couldn't get much higher. Yeah. Hasta la vista, baby. And these discs don't wear out. They're the same high quality the first time or the 100th time you watch them. Laserdisc will become the format you choose for watching movies. And the extensive range released each month includes everything from classics to blockbuster new releases. No matter what your taste in movies or music, the PAL Laserdisc player allows you to enjoy the future today. Join the home entertainment revolution with Laserdisc. You won't believe the difference. Call this number now for the latest information on how you can have this exciting new technology in your home. No, I heard they were like massive, though. Yeah, well, have you like have you looked up like laser discs, like to see like just how? I I know the presentation. It was much are. like a vinyl, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, same shape. I I think they're pretty sure they're the same dimensions, like that twelve inches. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I I we never had one. Um, my mm-hmm. dad's boss way back in the day, we went over there for some party or something like that, and he had a laser disc, and he was showing it off, and I couldn't tell you what movie we watched on it like it could have been the rock 
Um, oh yeah. But like I remember like seeing it, and then like yeah, it looked really good, and it sounded really mm-hmm. good. Um, but yeah, like no one I knew had those kicking around, but. A lot of that comes down to like the cost of these things, because like not only did you have to buy a mm-hmm. laser disc player, but the actual actual discs, those cost like anywhere I think as low as like thirty dollars US to like a hundred dollars US, and I'm I'm right. suspecting that the Criterion versions were like in that hundred dollar range. Um, yeah, so that's what I'd guess. Yeah, so I mean, while uh, this is also from that uh, same uh, chapter of the book, while Criterion had been able to procure non-exclusive rights to Hollywood classics, so when we've been watching like, movies like RoboCop and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and that John Woo stuff, uh, when studios had little interest in the sales generated from a niche product such as laser discs, this was not the case with DVDs. Um, so the roughly six hundred thousand dollars in sales generated by Criterion's Blade Runner on LaserDisc pales mm-hmm. in comparison with the revenues of a modern DVD blockbuster. Uh, sales of various DVD releases of The Fellowship of the Rings alone were $498 million in mid-2004. Yeah, um, but that's because Fellowship rules. Well, so does Blade Runner. But uh, that just yeah. g- gives you an example of like just the the market shift that occurred. Um, mm-hmm. And like one of the other drawbacks with Laserdisc as well was that you couldn't record movies. So that's why like VHS always would have it it just as like a practical thing where it's like people are like, well, that's crazy. Why would you possibly have a a, a system that couldn't record things off a TV? (laughs) How are you going to record Roots to watch it again? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's like the Sega CD when they marketed that. Like no kids could afford it because it was like $400 and it was only like dudes that – do like old men who like didn't even really like games Mm -hmm. yeah uh when i was looking around online uh there's some good laser disc commercials uh from uh the vintage period uh Mm -hmm. there's one with ray charles uh talking about laser disc and all it is is him making a bunch of puns about how he's blind (laughs) music video i can't see it if the music don't sound good who cares what the picture looks like Then Pioneer gives me their laser disc player. It's a video turntable that works with a laser beam, and that laser beam makes all the difference, they tell me. (laughs) I'm a little skeptical, but I listen. I listen to Flash Dance. I listen to Barry Manilow. I listen to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I even listen to me, and I sound good. I sound better than good. Fact is, the stereo on the Pioneer laser disc is as good as anything I ever heard on my stereo. And according to the experts, the picture blows videotape away. <laughs> now, who am I to argue? The Pioneer laser disc brand video disc player. Video for those who really care about audio. I like it so much, I got one for my friend George Sherry. Oh, well, at least he had fun. He had a sense of humor about his, uh, yeah. his blindness. Yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. but so, yeah, I don't know. That's about it for, uh, recapping, I guess, uh, where laser, where laser discs and criterion entwined yeah. and kind of where their launching point was. Cause I was always curious, like, how did they get Citizen Kane and King Kong? Cause nowadays mm-hmm. that wouldn't happen. Criterion doesn't even get to touch that stuff, but we're, we are starting to see a little bit of a breakdown of that wall between Warner brothers and other studios, particularly with criterion. It seems like they're the only company that, uh, uh Warner brothers will work with now is yep. Criterion because they've been putting out a few things. There's that Asphalt Jungle coming out soon. And that's mm-hmm. like, that was like put out in a, in a um, Warner Brothers DVD not that long ago. But I was a little bummed out. There's this uh, Bad Rock or Bad Day at 
BlackRock movie that's coming out from like Warner Brother Archives, and they're just dumping it out as like a bare bones release. I'm pretty sure, and it's yeah. like unfortunate because it actually used to be a Criterion Laserdisc back in the day. So, well, you should get a Laserdisc. I bet you could get one for like decent cash on the internet. Yeah, I think I have to try to. F- I'd have to hook it up to a TV to make it look even good because part of the thing too is that all everything they, they put out was like later. It's all going to be letterboxed too, mm-hmm. so it's like not going to be anamorphic. It it'll look like junk, I think. Yeah, get over it though. I know. No, I'll just get, I'll just get past it. <laughs> yeah, but hey, and it's, yeah, this isn't a laser disc show. This is not a show yet. about Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. So, a synopsis for the uninitiated. Mm-hmm. Charles Foster Kane has died. And when he died, he left these enigmatic words on his deathbed, literally his deathbed, of Rosebud. Um, the film then proceeds into a montage, uh, a March on Time style uh, montage about his life in his history. Um, and it seems like it's a nice tidy package about the sort of legacy he's left. And mm-hmm. this isn't enough, though, for one particular uh, news organization that's going to send its reporter out to find out what the hell is this Rosebud business all about. Let's get behind the man, behind the story, and find out what really made this guy tick. So we then follow this journalist character uh, in his pursuit of this truth and as he interviews various people from Charles Foster Kane's past. And through these uh, interviews, uh, we get a, I guess, a portrait of this man, this American, um, through his life, him being uh, strangely adopted at the beginning of his life by a uh, millionaire, uh, his fighting back against this millionaire and his uh, investments in train corporations, his uh, running a newspaper, turning into his own uh, slander rag to run down his enemies uh, Mm -hmm. in in pursuit of his own righteousness. We see his first marriage. Um, We see him uh, unsuccessfully run for governor of the state that he's in. We see his marriage fall apart. We see his new relationship. We see his... uh, New relationship attempting to be pushed to be to heights of uh, talent that she simply does not have. We see him going closer and far further into him, his own self um, as he recedes into his own personal Xanadu, into his mountain palace uh, where he just hoards the world's valuables for himself. Um, and we just see the emptiness that all this money and success and failure has for this man named Cain. And we even find out what that rosebud thing is all about. Mm-hmm. But RJ, having mm-hmm. seen now Citizen Kane for the first time, I'm very curious before I launch into a whole bunch of stuff, what you think of old Kane? I think The Simpsons did it better. Oh, yeah? There is a man. There is- a certain man, a man whose grace and handsome face are known across the land. You know his name. You know his name. It's Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. He loves a smoke, enjoys a joke. <laughs> Why, he's worth ten times what he earns. He's Mr. Burns. I'm Mr. Burns. He's Monty Burns. I'm Mr. Burns. To friends he's known as Monty, but to you it's Mr. Burns. 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 Yeah. You like, you, like, uh, you prefer Bobo? <laughs> Yeah, I prefer Bobo, uh, just frozen in that ice. Um, okay, Citizen King. This movie is very nice. Very nice. <laughs> very nice. 
uh, best movie or best film of all time? I'm not sure. Do I have any real criticism criticisms of it? No. Uh, do I have anything to? Oh. Maybe Sister Act two back in the habit. Uh, but I think going in fresh, uh, first time ever watching it, it was very good. And I think it's obvious there's lots of stuff, lots of subtext in there. A lot of subtle things that uh, I probably missed on that would be noticed a lot by repeated watchings or perhaps a master class by Mr. Roger Ebert, mm-hmm. uh, showing me these subtle details, uh, of why, um, the tables change in, uh, size from scene to scene what it all means jerry what it, what all, it means. all means well uh, yeah see that's this is an interesting thing because uh so uh famed film critic pauline kale uh in her essay on the film raisin cane mm-hmm. she actually refers to it as a shallow masterpiece a shallow masterpiece yeah I, I could i could get on with that yeah um but i i buried the lead there uh mm-hmm. yes this movie is very good uh i just um it's one of those things it's like you hear your entire life that it's the greatest film ever made and then you watch it and you're like, hmm, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm undecided on that, but I, I will say it is very good. Okay. Uh, and there are things that are really nice about it. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I guess just as a whole, I like the storytelling that he does and the, th- the themes he touches on, like memory and time and life. But I mean, what else is new? People have been saying that shit for uh, 70 years. Am I right? <laughs> 75 uh, 75 yeah yes it is very good Jarrett. okay so you, you, you finally won i you, watched it okay um so when did you first hear about citizen kane the simpsons the simpsons kept okay. that's Probably. kind of what yep. i uh, figured um mm-hmm. so even more specific i guess so when did you first ever hear about orson welles Ooh man uh that'd be tough to identify probably when i started watching movies for real Uh, either that or when I watched movies for real or like I said before I've seen the movie through just cultural osmosis and other mediums before so I'm sure I've heard Orson Welles name many many times but uh, when the only time I actually identified it with like this film filmmaker was probably when I when I got real I put aside I put aside my uh my um, home alones and my fart DVDs and stuff like that. And I got it. I got into the real, real nitty gritties. Yeah. What about you? Well, you just, you came out of the womb. And you're like Orson Welles. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I don't know exactly where it started, but I mean, I was like, I guess I was kind of a weird kid when, uh, when I was like first watching stuff on TV. Cause like I always, mm-hmm. I loved black and white movies. Um, right. So like, this is looking into next week even, but like next week we're going to be talking about the movie M, uh, which stars Peter Laurie, who is this guy who's like so strange looking and like cartoonish, but I thought he was the coolest looking dude. Um, mm-hmm. So I was always drawn to like weird film noir-ish stuff. Like I love detective stories. I loved uh, black and white cinematography. I mean, I love the crowd, like the, the Marx Brothers and like I, I didn't even know what the hell they were talking about, but I just thought they looked mm-hmm. amazing. And then, like, somewhere along the line, like, between probably watching, like, cartoons, that is probably where I would have first encountered Orson Welles. Because I think there's, like, even, like, weird references to, like, Orson Welles on, like, the Garfield and Friends TV show. And, like, probably. Yeah. And, like, there's, like, I think, an ep- like, a Garfield Thanksgiving thing where he's, like, steps on a scale and it mistakes him for Orson Welles. Um, Classic. Yeah. And then, like, uh, just, like, 
hearing about like the War of the Worlds radio broadcast um, and like realizing cause this guy, this because you got this distinctive voice too. Um, mm-hmm. It's really memorable. Um, when I would have watched like the uh, Tim Burton Ed Wood movie, there's the scene with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio as Orson Welles. Um, mm-hmm. But he and, he and his voice though is done by uh, Maurice LaMarche, the voice actor who basically yeah. still does yeah. Orson Welles and Orson Welles sounding voices to this day, um, as he does for The Brain in Pinky and the Brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also do, did the Orson Welles voices in the uh, animated series The Critic. Did you ever watch The Critic? No. No? Man. I'm, I'm not that old, dear. Oh. I'm only 12. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. yeah like, I actually was thinking back to The Critic and watching like uh, audio clips of it uh, this week. And I was like, man, this like show I think had more influence on me than like a lot of stuff for like movies I've watched mm-hmm. just like for like introducing me to stuff early on and as did the Simpsons. Um, and cause yeah. they were both uh, companions to one another. Um, yeah. but yeah, so I, it was like not till probably again, like kind of like when I started really getting into films, like in high school and starting to like go through like that film history that I actually sat down and watched Citizen Kane. Cause Citizen Kane mm-hmm. is like kind of at a distance, sort of a generic sounding name. Um, but it's like a really great title. Like it, it's yeah. like, in, like now I look at it, I'm like, yeah, it's an amazing title. Cause the original title for it was going to be the American, but they changed, uh, they, they went away from that. Um, yeah, but yeah. So my relationship with Orson Welles is always just kind of like this, like, yeah, this weird guy, this big weird guy that people always talk mm-hmm. about. And he's got this really amazing voice and, mm-hmm. uh, he did some stuff and people like to make fun of him. <laughs> And like, and draw yeah. attention to him and like all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I always remember as a kid, yeah, there was like, um, there's this one kids in the hall sketch where it's like mm-hmm. all about a guy uh, trying to t- convince or talk about a movie that he'd seen the night before. And he's describing Citizen Kane, but his, and his friend keeps telling him, well, you watch Citizen Kane. And he's like, no, no, that's not, that's not it. That's not it. Yeah. And it just keeps going on. It wasn't and on. a great movie, but how often do you see a great movie? Oh, I, I saw a great movie last night. Yeah, it was on. It was on the Late Show. It was um, uh, uh, oh, what was it called? It, it's a classic. It's a real. It's a classic. It's um, uh, oh, I hate this. I hate it when this happens. Well, what was it about? Uh, it's about this uh, newspaper tycoon, and he's dead, and everybody's telling stories sure. about him. And it's it Citizen Kane. No, that's not it. No, 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 no. But it's something like that. It's uh, it's um. Uh, okay, who was in it? Um, Orson Welles is in it. Okay. And it's and this is called... Citizen Kane. It's, it's Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. No, that isn't it. That isn't it. But it's, 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 you're not far from it. It's, uh... uh well, who else was in it? Oh, um, uh, I don't know. I was was uh, Joseph Cotton in it? What else has he been in? Uh, uh, the, the Third Man, The Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, The Magnificent Ambersons, yes. Yes, yes, he was in it. Yes, oh, that's one of my favorite Orson Welles movies. Well, but this is definitely Citizen Kane, then. You're talking about Citizen mm, Kane. No, 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 but it's... Something like that. It's it's sis 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 no, no, I just told you. It's about this newspaper tycoon. He had a sled named Rosebud, and, uh, and they're all trying then to figure it out. Then I guess it wasn't Psycho, was it? No, it wasn't Psycho. It was Citizen Kane? No, it was a- a- Angie, Angie, Angela, Angela, Angels. The Trouble with Angels. No, 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 it wasn't The Trouble with Angels, no. That's a Haley Mills vehicle. That's not even close. The front page. Oh, the front page is a comedy. Did you laugh once? 
No. Um, so yeah, it's always like if you and you look up like Citizen Kane on Wikipedia, and you look at like all the references to Citizen Kane on IMDb, and like all these mm-hmm. movies that are like takes off of that, like Citizen Cohen, Citizen blah blah blah, and it's just like yep. it's it's uh, presence is felt through everything it seems. And RJ, yep. uh, are you aware that Citizen Kane is President Elect Donald Trump's favorite movie? <gasps> I was not aware of that. I was always under the impression that his would be like. I don't know. Edit this later. Insert a snappy title for a movie that is culturally significant and mm-hmm. topical. Yeah. Okay. And, Get back to the show. And Errol Morris made a short documentary about it where he interviewed him. The word rosebud is maybe the most significant word in film in what we all watch. The wealth, the sorrow, the unhappiness, the happiness just struck lots of different notes. Citizen Kane was really about accumulation. And at the end of the accumulation, you see what happens, and it's not necessarily all positive. Not positive. I think you learn in Cain that maybe wealth isn't everything because he had the wealth, but he didn't have the happiness. The table getting larger and larger and larger with he and his wife getting further and further apart as he got wealthier and wealthier. Perhaps I can understand that. The relationship that he had was not a good one for him. Probably not a great one for her, although there were benefits for her. But in the end, she was certainly not a happy camper. In real life, I believe that wealth does in fact isolate you from other people. It's a protective mechanism. You have your guard up much more so than you would if you didn't have wealth. There was a great rise in Citizen Kane. And there was a modest fall. The fall wasn't a financial fall, the fall was a personal fall. But it was a fall nevertheless. So you had the highs and you had the lows. A lot of people don't really understand the significance of it. I'm not sure if anybody understands the significance, but I think the significance is bringing a lonely, rather sad figure back into his childhood. The word rosebud, for whatever reason, has captivated moviegoers and movie watchers for so many years, and to this day is perhaps the single word. And perhaps if they came up with another word that meant the same thing, it wouldn't have worked. But rosebud works. Rosebud works. Right. For whatever reason. You know, if you could give Charles Foster Kane advice, 
What would you say to him? Get yourself a different woman. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was very good. Yep. Topical. Yeah, topical. And he's, mm-hmm. and he, and he seems like uh, Trump comes off as far more like rational, insane than he does nowadays. Yeah. yeah, except for the end when he's like, "You have it." What would your advice be to uh, Citizen Kane? And he's like, "Get a different woman." That that's him. and you're that, just like, "There's that, there's old Donald." That's vintage, <laughs> vintage Donald. Yeah, mm-hmm. classic. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I'm sure this is a lot of people's favorite movie. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Citizen Kane's a strange thing too, because like, um. Uh, so Francois Truffaut, he, what he had to say about it was, it's probably the one film that has started the largest number of filmmakers in their careers. Um, yeah, like, I can see that. Yeah, it's like a film, I think, like because like when it first came out, um, it uh, it didn't really get seen a lot because mm-hmm. of uh, outside forces. Because, I don't know, if have you read much about this film at this point? Or am I going to be educating you? RJ continues, I don't know anything about Citizen Kane, man. Okay. Well, well, actually, that's not true. It's like I said, I know stuff through other mediums. Okay. So, yeah. uh, are you familiar with William Randolph Hearst? Nope. Nope. <laughs> okay. Nope. So that's like that. That's a significant part of the puzzle, I suppose. Um, okay. So William Randolph Hearst was a uh, newspaper magnate. Uh, okay. Kind of through like the early 20th century, um, and like he's kind of famous for. Uh, just basically making shit up in his newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like, it's the same thing where he's this like rich kid who uh, wound up with newspapers and he just used them as his own personal um, vessel to like destroy things he didn't like and go after people. And he was just, he's, do that, and he yeah. just, and he just wanted more newspapers and he just bought them up and he spread his influence all over. Um, I guess he famously was a big fan of the uh, old comic Crazy Cat, and so he always mm. made sure that was published, no matter what. That no one else liked it, he liked it. Um, so he kind of nice. he called his own shots. Um, so yeah, Hearst paper. I mean, they would. It, it was like uh, where yellow journalism comes from. The idea of just mm-hmm. like just slandering your opponents and destroying them, and like running things that are not true. Uh, I think there's like this one great anecdote off the documentary, a battle over uh, Citizen Kane, talking about like how there's like this one train line in like California, and uh, they would refer to passengers as survivors. <laughs> Like, oh, okay. it's that type of thing. Like, all oh, the survivors of the train arrived safely <laughs> instead yeah. of just passengers. So he's that type of guy. Uh, paper would call for the death of President McKinley. And then when someone did shoot and kill McKinley, uh, people responded by burning uh, effigy of Hearst, uh, right. which which is kind of captured in that uh, montage of Citizen Cam. Right. So there's always been this thing around like so Orson Welles when he did the War of the Worlds uh, broadcast mm-hmm. back in the day there was I mean it was fairly calculated I think by Orson <laughs> Welles to get the reaction that it got uh, which I'm, I'm assuming you're aware of the War of the Worlds yes, broadcast I do know about that I think yeah that one I think is unavoidable yeah. so um, I mean he knew kind of what was going to happen and then afterwards, he was very apologetic and saying, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, oh, I'm so mm-hmm. I'm so upset by this. We didn't know that this, this was going to lead to this. There would be a panic, et cetera, et cetera. But it was like the best thing that's ever happened to his career. Um, yep. 
And then, so with the Citizen Kane thing, I mean, he, him and his uh, co-writer, uh, Herman Mankiewicz, they basically set out to do a biopic on Hearst with like the serial numbers filed off, like hitting right. upon all sorts of things. Cause like Hearst actually, he had a actress wife that was way younger than him that he was also promoting. Mm-hmm. The difference there that she was actually talented, unlike in Kane. Oh. Um, is that and, just cynic, cynicism coming mm, through for uh, them writing it? Uh, yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, there's the other aspect, because they definitely would have known that, but they just added an extra level as a character, because it's not based on him, right? Uh, sure. Apparently, like, the, the Rosebud thing allegedly has something to do with that. was, like, the name that Hearst gave to this particular woman's uh, anatomy uh, in private Ooh, that they found ew. out about. <laughs> so, How did they find that out? Uh, well, because Mankovich was a buddy of uh, in that Hearst circle. Oh, so, okay, that's like, gross. So, so William Randolph first. <laughs> like, yeah, so, I mean, he, he wound up building, like, a, a castle, like, a giant castle with a giant zoo with, like, mm-hmm. animals from all over the place. Um, like, he, he had, like, kangaroos in California on this, like, giant private uh, premises that he had. And then uh, because of his actress um, wife, she would, like, bring the Hollywood, like, uh, hoity-toity up there and they'd hang out and it was a party even though like there was no drinking and no smoking mm-hmm. aloud kind of thing because he, he himself Lame. like he was not a party man he was an old bitter man um Lame. yeah so um there so that's like an aspect of the film that i think is like fairly important to keep in mind is just like yeah that this is like about this is like a william randolph hearst movie with like but he couldn't say that because he would say no absolutely not like this isn't about him what are you talking about it's just a coincidence mm-hmm. at most um but this is a film that kind of like would probably shadow uh, orson Welles's career forever because uh the studios were really uncomfortable with the fact that they just made a movie about this guy who has made no qualms in his life about destroying his enemies through the press and he mm-hmm. could so uh from this point forward you would like RKO pictures stuff, they wouldn't be allowed to run advertisements in Hearst newspapers. Um, hmm. And then, like, with Citizen Kane, when it actually came out, it could only play in RKO theaters. Um, it wasn't, And so its distribution was really hampered because all these, like, major film chains and, like, production companies, they didn't want anything to do with this movie that had pissed off Hearst or could piss him off if he cared. Because mm-hmm. it's not like he went out of his way to, like, really destroy this film or anything like that but there were definitely people who did attempt to uh, circumvent it because there's the one story here that i'll uh, recap so before kane opened uh george schaefer was summoned to new york by nicholas shank the chairman of the board of lowe's international the mgm affiliate that controlled the distribution of mgm pictures and schaefer uh had staked just about everything on wells in this movie and now Schenck made Schaefer a cash offer from Louis B. Mayer of uh, MGM uh, of $842,000 if Schaefer would destroy the negative in all the prints. Uh, the picture had actually cost about $686,000 to make. So it kind of helped cover the rest of those post-production costs. But they didn't want this movie to come out. Right. Um, this was, And this wasn't just like um, uh, Mayer putting up the money himself. This was a joint offer from other like top movie magnets who were combining for common protection. Uh, the yep. offer was presented to Schaefer on the grounds that it was the best interest of everybody concerned for Citizen Kane to be destroyed. Um, obviously, uh, Schaefer mm-hmm. refused because we're watching the movie and talking about it right now. He did not right. take this deal back to RKO's board of directors as he probably suspected correctly the deal would have been taken. Um, 
But I mean, the film wound up dying on the vine at the time because uh, it didn't get theatrical distribution because no one wanted to really play this movie due mm-hmm. to fear of what the ramifications of that would be. Um, and so it, when it came to Oscar time for this movie, it only won one Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And for mm-hmm. like in all the other categories where it got nominated, it would go to movies that like were it would have people involved with the, their productions winning, mm-hmm. but not Citizen Kane. Like it, it was like kind of one of those things where you're like, hmm, like it just it was intentional because no one wanted actually yeah. Citizen Kane was that great in that regard. So I mean, obviously Orson Welles was probably also very offended by this uh, weird active thing because I mean. I guess I could also talk about how Orson Welles came to Hollywood in the first place and was kind of given this amazing deal to make this movie. Sure. So uh, he was like kind of a child prodigy, um, did theater all around uh, from being a kid to in Ireland to back to America. Uh, he was able to kind of capitalize on uh, Roosevelt's uh, work program program. Uh, stuff going on in the 30s during the uh, Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was uh, one of the particular things was like running a uh, theater in Harlem where he would be, he was putting on uh, Shakespeare productions for like black audiences, starring black audiences. Um, and so he was making his kind of name off of Shakespeare stuff and just, just doing these uh, different sort of things like Julius Caesar, but like with obvious like, uh, like Hitler infused imagery. Which at the, for like okay. in the for in the early like in the thirties when Hitler was first taking power that was like mm-hmm. bold to do um, and like just like the and depicting like you know the yeah. anti semitism happening there which again is something that wasn't really being done um, and so mm-hmm. he was making a name for himself in, in theater with the Mercury Theater Group and then mm-hmm. so which broke off from like those uh, federal government uh, fundings at some point. And then he did the War of the Worlds uh, radio show, which completely changed it. And then he became like kind mm-hmm. of the hot, the hot chased after uh, object of desire by Hollywood. They wanted him to come and work for him. They wanted him to act, and he just refused all their offers. And he's like, "No, nah, no, nah, it's not good enough. I want money. I want to make a movie." Um, mm-hmm. Even though he'd never made a movie in his whole life. And then finally, <laughs> finally, RKO was the company that said, "Hey, we're going to give you like carte blanche. You can make whatever you want." And you, you, you get, you get to write it, star in it, direct it, everything. And you get final cut, which was insane for 1940. Like no one got to do that at all. And on top of that, I even had the added thing where, uh, no one would get to look at his daily rushes, which is like absurd because like the studios Mm -hmm. want to know where their money's going and they want to be able to look at what's going on. But he had that power where it's like, nope, no one gets to see anything I'm doing till it's done kind of thing. So, Man. uh, so people we, don't get to do that today even. No. Well, there's always the one thing that like people bring up is like the most recent example of it that I think of would be like when Tom Green made Freddie got fingered because oh. he, he basically had the, like the Orson Welles deal. Like he could, yeah. he'd got to do whatever he wanted. And it's like, obviously there's quite a, uh, drop off between uh, or- what Orson Welles did and what uh, Tom Green was doing. But, I don't know. But it's like, that's like the closest thing to it. But then it shows like, once again, this is why studios don't let people do whatever they want, I guess, yeah. is uh, because of things like Freddy Got Fingered, which actually I think is not too bad of a movie. Um, I like that movie. Man. And then sometimes you get Citizen Kane. Yeah. But so there was a lot. So uh, Orson Welles shows up and he's like kind of like got this like crappy little scrubby beard going on in like the late 30s, which like is just not the look that people go for. Um, And I guess like his initial movie that he did want to make was Heart of Darkness. 
the Joseph Conrad book, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, famously is also Apocalypse Now. Uh, but he wanted to do it back in the 30s. And, I mean, it sound, it, that sounds absolutely amazing on paper, but, alas, mm-hmm. uh, didn't come to be. But they wound, he wound up doing Kane instead. Um, and so, yeah, they made the movie. Um, so RJ, maybe share with us some, your thoughts of the movie, your run down through the thing. My rundown? Yeah. Uh, Well, it's like I touched on before. I mean, it seems very evident now, but, uh, I'll just be parroting what other people say. I mean, it's very good. Uh, the cinematography is ace. Everything looks very nice. Uh, I particularly like his lighting and use of shadows and things like that. Uh, did he have a hand in that or did he have his own cinematographer who like... Excellent question. So yeah. um, one of the things well, that comes, the story that always gets told of this film is that um, kind of like the best cinematographer in Hollywood, Greg Toland, mm-hmm. he came to Orson Welles himself and said, hey, I want to work on this movie with you. I want to work mm-hmm. with you. And he was like, oh, cool, great. And so um, so Greg Toland, like, he'd worked with, like, John Ford at this point. Um, he, like, died, like, only like, about 10 years after this came out. But he kind of was, like, the mm. he was the best in the business. And it was strange because uh, he wanted to work with Orson Welles because Orson Welles had no idea what, what, what how things worked. He didn't know. So Orson Welles would be talking about lighting. He'd be like, yeah, I want the lights here, here, set up. And, like, he, he was directing mm-hmm. that. But that's, like, not the director's job that is actually the uh, uh director of photography's job which is greg right. tolan but greg tolan was like totally fine with this because he's like yeah let's let's do it let's see what you who know nothing about this business decides to do and he would yeah. figure out how to actually do that um mm-hmm. so i mean like yeah that's just, like one of the like neat little anecdotes about it and i guess like uh orson wells i mean he came into this not knowing anything and he wanted to learn so i mean like he him and uh tolan were like would sit around watch like uh, John Ford's stagecoach over and over and over again. And that's basically how mm-hmm. uh, Orson Welles learned about shots and like what things, how things worked, how editing could work and all that. Um, right. And then like, there was like the one line of like Greg Tolan saying that like everything you could, you need to learn to become like a professional, like cinematographer is you could learn in a weekend. And he basically mm-hmm. showed him how to do that in a weekend, like showing him how lenses work, how the cameras work and how light works and, like shortcuts and all the things and that's all learned which is like a weird thing for a professional to do to some show somebody like yeah you can learn my job in like two days if you actually know what you're doing but it also helps to actually kind of be like uh talented too (laughs) because i'm sure there's many cinematographers that work in the industry right now that probably aren't don't know everything that there is to know with years of education. Yeah. Even with years of education, you're not learning from anybody that really knows this stuff either. Cause they're not like, they're just learning it. And then they kind of atrophy and they don't develop their skills. Um, right. which actually, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if you were going to touch upon this in your notes, but like the use of, uh, deep focus in this film, mm-hmm. like it's something that we take for granted, I think, but like, um, if you think about like in high and low, the fact that you can see the foreground, background, mid ground, all simultaneously, that's right. another thing in Citizen Kane that like people weren't doing at this point in time uh, to this degree anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's like when you look at like the list of uh, directors who utilized uh, depth or deep focus, it's like all the people that we we still talk about. Your Kurosawa's, your Kubrick's, your Jean Renoir's, your Jacques Tati's, David Lean. Um, they were all doing it. But now we don't see that anymore um, because it's very difficult to do. 
to like actually yeah. light scenes properly to get that amount of detail and show up all simultaneously on the screen. Um, mm-hmm. So because nowadays, because of the influence of television, uh, we get the idea of coverage instead. So we just cut into scenes. We get scenes built up in editing rather than like one solid composition of just characters, people being blocked out and then shoot it yep. beautifully. Um, Steven Soderbergh has a quote about this saying, uh, that kind of staging is a lost art, which is too bad. The reason they no longer work that way is because it means making choices, real choices, and sticking to them. That's not what people do now. They want all yep. the options they can get in the editing room. So that's kind of yeah. why movies look really flat and kind of dull because they're like, ah, we'll fix it in post. We'll just uh, chop it all up because it'll look like television, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is too bad. Too bad. Well, when we make movies, we'll uh, we'll do the details. Mm-hmm. We'll do a three-day course, and we'll learn everything we need to know. Just like Greg Tolan told Orson Welles. Yeah. No. He seemed like he knew what he was doing, though. Yeah. So. But, yeah, I mean, and also, like, um, like the gliding cameras in this movie. Like, oh, I've, yes. I've watched a lot of stuff of, like, from this period of time relatively in the last mm-hmm. couple years. And I just, like, was watching this movie for the first time in 15 years probably now um and yeah. it's just like holy crap like the, that camera is moving in ways that it shouldn't be at this time and mm-hmm. and it's like amazing like everything is so dynamic yeah yeah um but yeah continue no no yeah i agree with you uh with that stuff the camera work is awesome there there's that's what i was trying to talk about with the cinematography too there's there's a lot of things that they show that you wouldn't think that they should be able to show at that time. Right. Like, uh, the use, like that scene where he walks through the mirrors, that's really cool. Uh, even the way that they edit stuff together, like dissolving the film into like a picture. And then it's all, it's the way that the intro is where it's like the spinning headlines, newspapers. That's how I, I viewed like the whole movie. Like it just kind of flows very seamlessly where, uh, in an innovative way, like he transitioned between scenes and um, from other movies I've watched from the period, uh, no one else was doing stuff like that. Well, yeah. So there's another one too, where uh, Orson Welles, I guess, like he didn't realize uh, how cross fading worked or like, Mm -hmm. like, so when things would cross into one another. So what he was doing was when he'd end his scenes, they actually had the aperture go down. So the light would actually go to black. And so when they matched Mm -hmm. those scenes up, there'd be scenes where the transitions were literally going to black and then fade into one, the next one, because they fade out of darkness into light when they were doing their shots. Mm -hmm. And so they'd match up because everything was planned so meticulously. Like everything was like, this is how we're going to do it. And this is how we thought you would have to do it. So it has this like, Mm -hmm. so it looks better than when other films were doing it at that time because he just thought that made sense um but it didn't yeah. have to work that way but because he did it that way and it's so invisible like you don't really that's something that you would never notice um but it just like when you start picking when someone points it out to you it's like oh wow <laughs> that's right. like what like, look at this attention to detail um right. which i mean like even plays into like that like the news on the march opening scene of the film mm-hmm. um which actually the reason it actually was edited by um, the people who did those actual March in Time newsreels back in the day. Nice. So that that's why it works. So it has yeah. like all the stock footage. But then you look at mm-hmm. the attention to detail in that, like where like they staged like these anti-cane rallies and pro-cane mm-hmm. rallies and they just would have found extras and they shot like maybe three, two seconds worth of footage and they would mm-hmm. it would have taken like a, a day to like do this, but they went and did it because they're like, we got to have that. We got to have that shot in it. And they went and did right. it. Actually, uh, the thing that occurred to me was like, this reminds me of Zack Snyder uh, opening credit work. 
Uh-huh. Like, it's like, yeah, I'm man. Trying, yeah, because it's like, I'm like, obviously, uh, like, Zack Snyder gets to use a lot more technology. Um, but, yes. but they're basically, they're all using special effects. But mm-hmm. uh, that's, like, the, probably the best thing I'll ever say about Zack Snyder's work is his opening credit stuff is always actually, like, the highlight of his movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he learned a thing or two about the, from these guys, I think. From OW? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that stuff's all great. Um, and then, like I was saying earlier, uh, the themes he kind of goes on. And actually, uh, the storytelling, like, it's nonlinear, kind of, which you know I'm a big fan of, as we've discussed, it, it when, it's right, yep. when it's done right. When it's done right, it's terrific, uh, which I, I really like. Um, you kind of keeps you on your toes, man. It makes It makes it so you... I guess it may not have been an issue then, but like today, how do you like capture the audience's attention for more than a couple minutes at a time? Like you got those kids these days, Jer, and they're on their cell phones and it's like, what are you going to do? So you do something like this and it's just like, oh man, I better pay attention because I don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. That's my hot take on uh, nonlinear storytelling from 1941 to, ni- or to 2016. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, yeah, like, like I was saying, I re- one thing I just really like is playing with the ideas of like history and time and the way time passes for people and how memory is like, as you know, uh, my master's degree was just on memory and like learning and things of that nature. So I, I think it's really interesting to look at how, how people view memory and how it's viewed through other people's eyes and how, you know, people who live the same experience don't take it away the same as others do. Stuff like that. You know what I mean, man? I think you picking so. up what I'm putting down. Well, it's I thought, neat. Yeah, it's neat. yeah, I think it's interesting though too, because uh, you're actually picking up on themes in this movie, which is something that, like, when you read a lot about this movie, people are really mm-hmm. hung up on the technical stuff. And I think for me, that's like the most like interesting stuff is just like watching how this movie was like put together from like a technical standpoint, because mm-hmm. you have to consider this is like a first time director, right. <laughs> like he had never made a movie before. And this is his first like mm-hmm. real like pr- feature film. And you compare this to like other directors feature films and there's just like no comparison for like how like mm-hmm. sophisticated it is. In some ways you could right. even argue that like there's almost like a regression. Um, mm-hmm. But like I think in him, like I was reading um, – he has an interview with a – there's a book. It's like the closest thing to a biography or autobiography that Orson Welles has. It's called This is Orson Welles. And it's just a book of interviews between Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Welles for like from like a 30-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, and like he kind of like – he complains about a lot of shots in Citizen Kane. He's like, oh, that's so showy. Oh, my – I wouldn't do it that way now. Mm-hmm. Like he's just like really like very critical of like, nah, I was being such a showboat, uh, which is like hilarious because mm-hmm. Orson Welles is a showboat. Yeah. Um, his whole life um, but yeah like it's um, amazing just like what he was doing because I mean there's like sort of like that German expressionist sort of uh, vibe to some of the cinematography because it's so like mm-hmm. the black it's so graphic in its qualities right. um, like that opening credit scene is like so amazing it's just like a series of like fades into the next level as we get zoomed in right. on to Xanadu and I mean like it's something like out of a like a, of a horror film um, mm-hmm. like it's just like this like yeah it's like this dark gothic castle and just we move right. in through um, and like the weird enigmatic like shots in the film like the mirror shot of him like, like near the end of the movie when he's walking yep. through the hall of mirrors the shattering of the snow globe um, mm-hmm. yeah like it's like it has these like gothic qualities uh, kind of running God dang through. right God dang right um but yeah, so yeah, opening credits are amazing. The, that yeah, that yeah. march, that march in time style uh, news on the march uh, montage mm-hmm. is like a 
amazing. And I can't, it's actually like quite substantial too. Like, cause it tells you the movie. It tells you, yeah, the, it, it, it tells you the whole damn movie is pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. But then we're left with that story of like, well, what, what's with that rosebud thing? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it, it sets everything up and it gets, it pulls you in. But uh, I, w- I was just thinking as you were talking about like how a lot of people praise it for the technical aspects. Yeah. I think that might just be uh, uh, an artifact of coming from a first time viewer. Like I was saying before, like I'm sure the more I watch this yeah. and if I read like people's reviews or looked at commentaries and like it's like you said, once you have certain things explained to you mm-hmm. from people who like maybe took a film studies course and you just did this film for the entire course. Yeah. It's like, look at how he does these things like repeated watchings and like trying to understand it i'm sure would pick up on those technical aspects more Mm. and like i did notice some of them but it's like i said i'm sure there's tons and tons of stuff that like just kind of went over my head but uh yeah for me i i uh i responded more to just the the themes he was going with with time and memory and you know life man life man life Mm. so as a first time watcher that's what i took away from it all okay that's that's good actually um because it yeah like uh i guess like i've seen it like several times because like i i I wound up listening to it again with the roger ebert commentary uh because it's been years since i listened to it but i remember it being like probably one of the best uh because ebert only ever recorded six commentary tracks and this was Mm -hmm. one of them and i think i remember being like really really great uh, especially compared to the casablanca one which i remember being very superficial but i think that movie is like there's not much to talk about with that movie in it's, it's that's a movie about the story rather than like a lot of the technical stuff um mm-hmm. and, there, and there's so much like depth to this movie as far as like its context and time and then technical stuff and like all the stories that come out of it and just like orson welles being this like larger than life uh personality which isn't a right. fat joke um Ayo. oh um yeah uh what else do you want to talk about? Uh, uh, I don't know, man. Like it's th- like I was saying, like I could just name stuff that I liked, but do it uh, for for well. Oh jeez, I, I was saying that is like a like a n- get away from that. Like, oh. Yeah, to get away from it. Um, <laughs> like well, I don't know, man. Like every scene has something good in it, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's only two things that um, I was like, I wonder why they did that. Okay. Uh, one thing, and this is like a super lame ass nitpick thing that it's like i am sure other people are like what are you a fucking loser like why do you got to do this stuff like this the only thing i was weird about was when the scandal erupted i was surprised that citizen kane didn't strike first in his newspaper trying to bypass that and being like look this governor's blackmailing me it's just what i said mm. you know lock him up well i think governor for prison I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, t- a time and place thing there, too, because there's that aspect of, like, uh, he, he would have made so many enemies that, right. like, the, all the forces there would have gathered to, like, just hone in and destroy him. And everyone would enjoy and take, like, joy in, like, destroying him, his career. Because um, at that point, he was, like, unimpeachable and everyone was too afraid of him. But then they finally found, like, a, a, a little colonel, which is, like... Uh, in the context of when that period of time would have been so that's like probably 1910 like the morals yep. of that would have been like oh my god he's stepping out with a quote unquote singer um, mm-hmm. and then it would have just been kind of falling apart from there um, it's kind of funny that you know this uh, this naive world where like silly things like that could destroy a political career and then other things don't um, mm-hmm. but here we are oh, yeah. we're, maybe, we're a jaded people now 
Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's the current political climate that uh, got me thinking. It's like, why doesn't he just flip that on him? Yeah. But again, that's a, as I said before, that's a silly thing to uh, nitpick about because, you know, I don't know how I would respond in that situation. Maybe <laughs> you're just so flabbergasted by it. You just don't know what to do. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Anyways, the only other thing that I, I was like, what is what is the deal with that fucking transition with the bird scream? That caught oh. me so off. That caught me so off guard. I was like, "What the in, fuck in, is in that?" All, in all caps, I have here, "Screeching cockatoo." Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know, man. Is that something that's been analyzed before? Like, does any? No, is people, there a reason? I think for that? people. I think people avoid that one because there's like nothing you can yeah. say about it. <laughs> like, what I, it you, just, other than it's like, what the hell? It, it, it wakes people up. Yeah. I think. It caught me so off guard, like, because I was watching attentively, and then it, it like, came in. I was just like, what the fuck? Is that, it's funny, no, though, because... Does that happen right before he trashes the room? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, the guy who's, like, the uh, manager of his collections is, like, he's like, I'll tell you about Rosebud. He's like, yeah, he flew off the handle sometimes. It's like, like, the day his wife left. And then it's like, rah! Yeah. And then it, like, fades into that scene. I guess it's like, uh kind of a that would be sort of like a radio thing perhaps to do like your transition mm-hmm. but you get that weird close-up of it across the screen as it kind of yeah. flies across um and then just like the fact that you're going to get like some real intense emotionality right away mm-hmm. and it just ramps to that up maybe i think that's about yeah. what you could say yeah. about it yeah that that's that, those are the other downfalls so i um some things i do like here i like the little ties okay the, the really little ties that only cover like two buttons i think that's terrific uh, I, I wish I was alive in that time. I think I would have flourished with little ties and alcoholism and smoking and womanizing. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's better, better days, man. Uh, and then one thing I thought was really funny was when someone asked him, he's like, are you still eating? And he's like, I'm still hungry. <laughs> and I was like, I was like tragic irony. Mm, so, no, yeah, mm. no. Apparently he was, he always liked to eat. Um, yeah, I think that... That became clear. That, that was clear. Uh, well, because yep. like I think that there's like some comment like uh, like Norman Mailer, like the author. I think he like called like Orson Welles in this film like the most beautiful man in the world at this hmm. point. And I think okay. like I think like Orson Welles was always like, well, that's because they had to strap my face back with fish line to make me look skinnier because because he, he thought he was like hmm. always fat at this point. But I think like he was telling Peter Bogdanovich this, and like I just listened to the Bogdanovich uh, commentary before we were doing this, yeah. which is like the most drawl dry thing oh, like no. uh Bogdanovich just sounds like he's getting over a depression or something like that recording that one yeah i i, I remember Maybe. that and i remember that from years ago I remember being like this is so undynamic um mm. but uh yeah it's like how like uh like amazing uh wells looks when he's in this movie like this young strapping very uh i don't know young buck young buck young young, young buck young orson george yeah. orson yeah wells. he looks good man yeah yeah, uh, I I only have one thing to left to say, but maybe I'll save it for the end. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you What do you think about this movie? What do I think about other this than movie? what you've said so far? Oh, um, other than the fact that I loved like talking about it, I guess. Um, yeah. I think it is. I wouldn't call it like the greatest film of all time because that's always silly. Um, yeah. I, I think actually it's fallen out of number one. Finally, I think it's still in the top five, but I think Vertigo is now number one. Mm-hmm. But I think like as time progresses, that always is going to shift. Eventually, it's going yeah. to be. I think number one, like in the next time they do their like every ten year poll of the critics, it's going to be mm-hmm. Godfather probably. Like it's always yeah. going to be something that's like 
a certain distance away from wh- whatever time you're asking. Um, right. But yeah, no, I think the movie's like like just fantastic. Just like for uh, like historically, it's amazing. Uh, story wise, it's not like my favorite story or anything like that. Like I don't personally mm-hmm. get like a ton out of the story. Like it's not like wow, I I just love reading it. Like oh, what a great story it is. Because um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like I mean the the Kane character isn't likable, right? Like he's kind of a, mm-hmm. a piece of crap. Like he's using yep. this. He's he has his own agenda. He's a great character, but he's mm-hmm. not like like a, something to really hold up. And like Joseph Cotton, his buddy. Um, Leland, he's like Jed, yeah, Jed. He's like, I don't know, there's not a, he's in the movie, but he's not like a, a massive driving force um, mm-hmm. behind a lot of stuff. Um, there's like, there's definitely a, um, there's a sense like you can never really get close to this movie, which I think is uh, great in a lot of ways because that's, that's, that's what the movie is about. Like you can never, it's unknowable, mm-hmm. there's an, a certain unknowability of like what Rosebud meant uh, or meant to Kane because there's like actually uh, the, the one really great scene that I never really picked up on or I forgot about anyway was the whole thing when he actually meets um, uh, Alexander uh, his next wife uh, when he met her waiting on the street when he gets sprayed with the mud after she was like getting a toothache medicine yep. Uh, yep, yep. he was on his way to to go look at his uh, dead mother's like remaining like assets because I think mm-hmm. he was and I think he was on his way there to go see if that sled was there and but he got side oh, but, okay. he, but, but he gets sidelined yeah he, yeah yeah but it's like this offhand they don't bring much attention to it he's just saying oh I'm going to go see, my mm-hmm. mother just died I'm going to go see her stuff and he never gets there and yeah, so yeah yeah and th- but it's like this beautiful little like side moment where you're like oh because like if he had never met her if it wasn't for this lousy broad <laughs> i guess that's what uh donald was talking about that's right when uh he was like better find another lady Hmm. Mm. yeah so i mean that oh yeah then there's like yeah that that the table scene that thing that that yep. that's like obviously a go-to i think probably the the iconic thing that people always talk about with kane um yep. I, this movie is responsible for giving us the the amazing uh, gif of uh, Citizen Kane of Kane's a defiant applause as mm-hmm. he just stares for it and just applause uh, despite everyone else uh, not. And Did I, you I, say gif? Yeah, it's gif, buddy. It's it's actually. I'm gonna take you out. Okay. I'm gonna take you out. Okay, sorry. Continue. <laughs> I mean, like I've I've seen that uh, for ages and ages. Oh yeah, it always makes me smile that people still talk about Citizen Kane even yeah. on the internet. What about the Shia LaBeouf uh, version? Oh yeah, of the guest. See, yeah, there's that too. Uh, um, which do you prefer, though, Orson Welles or Shia? Oh come on, Orson. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Bernard Herrmann score is uh, it's not mm-hmm. as crazy as he would get. Like I think he like right. didn't he didn't hit really hit his stride I don't think till that Hitchcock era but I mean mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome that he got to work with Bernard Herrmann like Citizen Kane and uh, I don't know if you noticed the editor on Kane was Robert Wise I did not notice that yeah so yep. he, and, but so Robert Wise uh, he became uh, persona non grata for old uh, Orson Welles because it was like while Orson Welles was gone that that magnificent Ambersons movie of his uh, got kind of mm-hmm. chopped up by Robert Wise under the orders of the studio, mm-hmm. and now we'll never get to see Kane. Uh, Kane Orson Welles is a real vision of Magnificent Ambersons, which I watched for the first time a few years ago, and mm-hmm. like the movie is like absolutely amazing, and it's really a bummer that like. The studio interference changes the whole like progression of that movie, 
Right. It sucks. It sucks. Uh, yeah. Maybe you should re-edit it. Nate, yeah, we have to find the footage first. I'll give me like two weeks. I'll dig yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah. You, you hear that, Warner Brothers? <laughs> I'm coming for you. So, I know so, they're listening. There's, there's finally someone willing to go look for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like uh, one of the throw too. So Roger Ebert, he describes this as a special effects movie. Which actually, oh. when, once you start, like, once he starts breaking down these scenes and the way that they were done through matte paintings and, like, just composition, you're like, yeah, mm. no, it really is. Like, there's, like, crazy weird stuff where, like, there's the one shot where, um, and this is, like, a common thing, where they start with a, sh- a big close-up of, like, kind of, like, an iconic image, like, uh, someone's picture, mm-hmm. and then it pans up, and then it, uh, it's the one where they move up to, like, the nightclub that uh, yeah. uh, Susan Alexander's working at, and then it goes forward toward the night uh, mm-hmm. skylight. But what's really interesting is that there, it goes through that um, the signage, but what mm-hmm. actually happens is it invisibly moves as the camera goes forward. And because it, it's like, oh, how did they have this camera pass through this caging? And it's like, oh, no, the actual thing moves apart. Yeah. And there's another bit when um, when uh, Kane's getting adopted um, at the the little shack in the, mm-hmm. the, the Midwest uh, snowy wherever um there's like it's just amazing there's this layout where the camera starts out the window with him playing out in the snow and then the camera mm-hmm. keeps moving back and moving back and then it actually it winds up literally passing through a table and you can actually notice that the, there's a uh, a hat sitting on the table and it's mm-hmm. moving and it's because the table just got put back together as the camera had to pass through it to get the shot done oh cool <laughs> yeah no it's just like there's just like this stuff where you're like, oh wow, like that's like seems so unnecessary, but there it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that always gets talked about weirdly with this movie that like it's kind of interesting from like a historical standpoint was that if you watch a lot of these movies from this period of time, they don't shoot ceilings, um, mm-hmm. and that's because you don't shoot ceilings because you're on sets that don't have yeah. ceilings. They're, they're, these are spaces that don't exist, but mm-hmm. because uh, Orson Welles wanted to shoot so much of this movie from like low angles, which we haven't even mm-hmm. talked about at this point, just like the use of low angles in this movie, which is it's like almost obsessive how everything is shot this way. It needed ceilings. So the way, what they did with the ceilings was that um, they used this like white um, gauze like cloth to kind of cover up all where the lights and the microphones were, which also mm-hmm. allowed them to position the microphones in better places so that they um, could pick up, you know, sound. Um right. And, uh, yeah, so this movie's got ceilings up the wazoo. They're all mm-hmm. over the place constantly. And particularly in the newsroom, they're actually almost too low, I would argue. Like, yeah. the, the characters just seem so tall, and then the ceilings are, like, relatively lower than they should be. But that's mm-hmm. neither here nor there. Yep. No, it's cool, though. Yeah. It's like I said, it's neat. It's neat. What a neat movie. What a neat movie. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, you, what can you say about this movie? Um, other than like, yeah, no, it's it's Citizen Kane for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. I I I love watching it. I can mm-hmm. I could watch it any day of the week, kind of thing. Um, and it's like I like I'm like oh, it's been so long since I watched it, and it holds up really well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's got it all, man. It's got it all. It's got. A, a, a hot story behind it it's got mm-hmm. and then yeah so I guess I, I've mentioned sort of like so Orson Welles he makes this movie 
Mm-hmm. And kind of from this point forward, he has nothing but problems getting movies made um, for like the rest of his career. And like everything he ever made is sort of compromised more or less. Cause like even like his, probably his most, his next most well regarded movie is touch of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, which like when it first came out, it got butchered or the first like opening credit scene got hacked up and chopped up and wasn't at all what he mm-hmm. wanted. And then like, it wasn't until um, like the late nineties that Walter Murch went in there with uh, Orson Welles's notes and he actually recomposited the opening sequence. And then you get to find out, Oh wow, this is like really amazing. Like what amazing sound design, what like amazing cinematography. Mm-hmm. It's like all one continuous take, which is actually one thing that's like pretty common with uh, Orson Welles stuff. Cause in Citizen Kane, there's a lot of like single take stuff going on yep. where it's like, uh, and it's always dynamic. Like it's not just like, mm-hmm. sh- like, I don't know. You watch some stuff, this thirties and forties stuff. It's very statically shot mm-hmm. and kind of not the most dynamic, but this movie, you could never accuse Citizen Kane of not being dynamic. But, uh, so like touch of evil is like his next kind of really big movie. But like, uh, one of my favorite movies of his that I've seen is the trial, his adaptation mm-hmm. of Kafka with, um, Anthony Perkins. And that movie is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Like the, the cinematography in that is just absolutely crazy um it's like right. it was shot overseas so taking full advantage of like some like the amazing like um like that really industrial looking uh modernist architecture and just having like the backdrop of like kafka play out against that is just mm-hmm. amazing um and then i just recently actually watched chimes at midnight um mm-hmm. which is his like weird like mashup of Shakespeare stories. So basically he readapted all of Mm. like Shakespeare to tell the story of Falstaff uh, from like Henry the fourth to Henry the fifth. And like, I, I didn't really like enjoy the movie as much as I think I could because I am really rusty on my Shakespeare. Um, Mm. It's been a really long. What's your deal? What's my deal? Uh, Well, I can't read. So that's always my deal. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I think I have to like, I think I'll, we got Henry V coming up like sometime in the new year. Uh, so I'll probably have to like uh, get some practice there and then maybe go back to Chimes of Midnight because I think Peter Bogdanovich says that he thinks Chimes of Midnight's his masterpiece. And on a visual mm-hmm. level, like once again, Chimes of Midnight looks like absolutely stunning. But a lot of the time I was like struggling to like follow along with even with the subtitles on like, what's the, what are the characters talking about in yeah. Shakespeare's? Mm-hmm. Um, and then like just uh, the last week I watched uh, lady from Shanghai, uh, with, which is his movie that he made with Rita Hayworth, his second wife. Um, mm-hmm. were you aware that Orson Welles was married to Rita Hayworth? Uh, I wasn't, but I mean, it makes sense. Yep. Well, he was to me. lady from Shanghai was the movie he got to make with her right before they got divorced. <laughs> So the movie's got that weird vibe of like, oh, their marriage is falling apart and she's a bad woman. Oh, that's like that should be like a subgenre explored by somebody figuring out all these movies that were made by people uh, with failing marriages, like The Rookie, with, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. That would go in there. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do it. But yeah, so yeah, I checked out the Battle Over Citizen Kane documentary for this, um, and it just what like, was that like. Uh, it's like really weird watching a documentary from 1996 and comparing it to how documentaries are made now. Like it seemed mm-hmm. like this wanted to spend a lot more time on things that like nowadays a modern documentary would skim right over just for time. Mm-hmm. They'd be afraid to bore people. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely languid at times, but it's like, a, like it's just cause uh, documentaries aren't edited this way anymore. 
Um, mm-hmm. But like, it's basically, I mean, you get this vibe sometimes watching like and reading about Orson Welles is that like he never made another good movie afterwards, um, that he just like uh-huh. spent his like final days doing like Transformers, like voiceovers <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. doing these like commercials selling wine and green peas. Turn camera. Mark. 102, take one. With overlap, action piece. Action awesome, please. Can you just do anything? No, it's a, sorry, cut. Yeah, really? 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So, Paul Masson. 102, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage, dated. So um, and it's like that's like his legacy is just kind of being this like weirdo magician guy, um, mm-hmm. morbidly obese, um, being made fun of. Aww. which I mean like he had like a sense of humor about this stuff too but I think he didn't like really being called fat <laughs> like because I don't yeah. think anybody does yeah that's too bad I mean speaking as a former fat kid it's like no one likes it no one likes even that. if you are Orson Welles mm-hmm. yeah um, oh I also watched the uh, RKO 281 uh, TV movie that HBO did with Leif mm-hmm. Schreiber as Orson Welles, telling the story oh, no. of just battle over Citizen Kane. James Cromwell as uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, John Malkovich as um, uh, Herman Mankiewicz, his co-writer. Yeah. Lots of star power in there, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's very like, it's fine, but it's kind of got that cheesy like TV movie vibe to it, where it's like trying to mm-hmm. put too much information in all the little like uh, anecdotes and stories, all put into an hour and a half. And right. I don't know. It's it was a TV it's movie. There. Just just watch the documentary and just watch sure. Jason Kane instead. Yeah, it's just better. And then I you hear you, man. You appreciate the classics a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Any other final thoughts on Kane? Uh, nope. Very well. Well, RJ, uh, I think that mm-hmm. leaves only one bit of business to uh, to attend to, and that yes. is who hates Citizen Kane, or who mm. who pretends to hate Citizen Kane because they're <laughs> online trolls. That's more likely. Yeah, it, it, I was trying to navigate the like uh, that landmine the, that minefield the, of like people who are like the trolls because it's like that's like there's like a lot of people who like try to get their own shit in saying no nah, I like this movie watch this t- short film I mm-hmm. made here's a link um, so half a star from Dominique Rodriguez I had to watch this film for a class and I honestly want the time I spent watching this movie back very overrated and Kane was lame uh, uh, that doesn't sound real Jay Meff gave this half a star no offense, but I hate this movie and don't trust people who love it. Sorry, bye. Maybe J Meth needs to stick to the meth. Yeah. 
Yeah, take that, uh, buddy. Rainus Mello gives this half a star. Why is this movie so famous? Why is this movie so boring? If I could say a word about this movie, it would not be Rosebud, but lame. <laughs> really, I've seen older movies with better plots and histories that are way more interesting than this one. What a waste of my time. Uh, I liked his review up to the lame point. Mm-hmm. After that, he, he should have cut it off there. Then it would have been good. Uh, Jacob Hamblin gave this one and a half stars. And he says, did I see a different film than everyone else? I was stoked to finally watch this after hearing of how good it was. This movie was so boring. I'm fine with Mm. black and white and slower films, but I could, (laughs) it's like they're talking about people. Yeah. (laughs) But I could barely (laughs) pay attention and I tried. The only thing I cared about was what Rosebud meant and I was satisfied with that. I will say that the cinematography is good. (laughs) Other than that, I was bored and it felt twice as long as it was. Uh, I'll, four, four hours long I don't know about that yeah. I'll probably give this one another shot at a different time but for now I was very disappointed hmm. wouldn't it be funny if he actually did watch a different movie he was like did I watch a different movie <laughs> and he was describing like Casablanca wouldn't that be weird <laughs> Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. it would be wild fun times Hmm. well mm-hmm. folks uh, after the break We're going to throw RJ into an open flame and get rid of that piece of trash. Oh, time. it to you well that's that's my own personal thing buddy well the way to your dead and uh, in the ground and in, in the ground yeah then then a journalist will go around figuring out what that is whatever it is at that point in time yeah he'll be like gorflon what does that mean mm-hmm. hey hmm. folks you can email us at criterion creeps at gmail.com and you can ask mm-hmm. about what gorlon means maybe rj will respond 
Uh, we've got a mm-hmm. Facebook page. We're on Instagram. We're on the Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Rate, subscribe, like, follow, etc., etc. Next week, spine number 30. Another oldie black and white movie. Fritz Lang's M. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Jared, I got a question for you. Yeah. When they remake Citizen Kane, who do you think is going to direct and star? <sighs> Brett Ratner? No. It's going to be a hot, young, up-and-comer. Who would that be? Who's a, who's a podcaster? See, because that's the thing. Radio is now podcasting. Kevin Smith? Uh, no, he's he's already coming on. It's got to be someone new, young. 20, young hot podcast. So that's the other thing. Orson Welles was only like twenty five when like well, could when, be us when, then. When, yeah, it could be us. Could be you. Could be us. Could be you. <gasps> and and you just gotta do something about tricking people into aliens existing. I've been trying to do that for fucking years, man. Haven't you been paying attention? Mm, nope. <laughs> I guess not. Well, you think about it. Yeah. You um, but will there be a place for Ryan Gosling in it? Uh, yeah, he's gonna be the singer's girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, uh, my f- uh, friend Mike and I, we hit, we used to like laugh about like making a uh, Citizen Kane remake, and it's like the title of it would just be Kane in all caps with an exclamation mark. And like, be, uh, be, yeah, yeah, like Kane and Kodos from The Simpsons, the aliens. Yeah. Okay. I dig it. Cool. All right. All right, folks. Well, Merry Christmas. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs>